from the studio of the Modern School of Film. Welcome to Murmur Meta. Hey guys, this is Robert Malazzo, host of Murmur, murmurradio.com. And this is the first of a continuing series of smaller, more streamlined episodes of the show called Murmur Meta. A little more of the meaty conversation, a little less of the editorial. I'll just set it up, step out of the way, and you can listen. So we uh, hope to bring you one of these every month. We'll see how it goes. We'll see who's up for it. And uh, give us your feedback. Let us know what you think of Murmur Meta. Today's Murmur Meta is Dan Ariely. Dan is an incredible guy and a brain that I could listen to for hours and hours and hours. I actually got to sit with him for an hour uh, chat at the Durham Hotel in Durham, North Carolina. So what you're going to hear is a streamlined version of that. Dan is a behavioral economist, social scientist, best-selling author. He does these amazing experiments that combine the objective scaling of uh, testing and researching and opinion polling and diagnostic polling, but with really cool everyday ideas like um, uh, why do we allow push notifications on our phone and is that a good thing? Um, should small talk be banned? What is the, the up and the down of small talk? Uh, how much extra time does emailing take in our life? Uh, when I email Dan, Dan and I email regularly, instead of emailing me a response, he actually voice records a response and sends it to me. I kind of like it. It's really interesting. Uh, I wanted to talk to Dan about things on a social science level and a behavioral level, and that's what you're going to hear today. You're also going to hear me uh, ask him a question that runs right into one of my bigger obstacles in doing this show, and it has to do with inviting guests and the fact that guests are loath to say no to me, but sometimes don't like to say yes to me. So they say something else. So I will bear my soul to Dan on this matter. And who knows, maybe an experiment will come out of it. I don't know. You're going to have to listen. One small qualifier before we welcome in Dan and the chat. Uh, the, the chat was recorded live at the Durham Hotel, really great place, on their rooftop awesome space, a little noisy on this night, a lot's going on, so the audio quality isn't exactly my optimal or our usual, but nonetheless, the content I think is really cool and buoyant and will rise above the noise, and wait till the very end, you got to listen to the whole thing because a really cool caveat came out of the discussion with Dan. You've got to listen, promise you'll listen, this is a really fun thing, and who knows, maybe we'll do an experiment together, Dan and I. All will be revealed. Here it is, Murmur Meta, Dan Ariely. Welcome. Thank you. Now, where were you today? Your territory is vast. Where, yes. Were you in Chapel Hill today? or? Uh, yeah, I, I came last night very late from Philadelphia. Uh, I spent the day at UNC, and now I'm back here. Yeah. Have you ever done an empirical test on why people make home in a certain community? I would very much want to study the kind of mistakes people make in general when they think about what to call a community. There's a lot of real mysteries. There's a lot of really interesting mysteries about where we choose to live. And, and in particular, what, what kind of things make people happy and that they don't, they don't anticipate? So there are some things we know. For example, we know that commuting is a killer for happiness. And we know that people don't get used to commuting. So if you lived in Europe and you commuted on a train, you'll get used to it, right? You'll figure out what to do on the train. You get on the train, you read your newspaper, a book, whatever you do, you get used to it. In the US, when we commute with cars, 
we never get used to it because we're always stressed about whether we'll get there or not. So even if we have a half an hour commute or whatever it is, because it could be anywhere between 20 minutes and 40 minutes, and we don't really know, we can't truly relax and do something else. Um, so, so, so for example, commuting, we know it's a, it's a mistake. There, there are other things that people do that, that are really puzzling. Like, think about the choices that people make uh, to live far away from other people so that nobody else can bother them. Right? This notion of everybody has their own basketball court and nobody to play with. It, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing experience. When you look at something like undergrad dorms, they have very little space and people are very happy. Uh, but when you think about people's intuition, people's intuition is, no, 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 I want my own space and I want everything to have individually. I, I spent two years in a research institute in New Jersey and it's a, it's a research institute that uh, invites people to come for a year or two. Everybody gets a little apartment, um, a really wonderful place. And I had an amazingly social two years. Uh, people would stop every night, somebody would stop for coffee, wine, some other. It was really wonderful. And then when I came to Duke, I wanted to um, buy a building, I wanted the university to buy a building, and do dormitory for the faculty. I said, let's have a small apartment, let's have one floor for common, uh, common activities, kitchen, you know, it, it's, you know, we're social animals. Eventually we spend so much time alone, shouldn't we celebrate being social to some degree? And the guy who runs all, the, the, all those decisions for Duke said that he's happy to, to let me try it, but he wants me to do a survey of the Duke faculty and see how many want to do it. And what's interesting is that there were some people who really wanted it. The, the junior faculty who were just coming in that had no social ties, and the people who were close to retirement. But the people in the middle had this theory that their lives are, the quality of their life is dependent on them having an extra bedroom, and three parking spaces, and a big yard. And, and I think they're wrong. Actually, I'm sure they're wrong, because when you actually look at their quality of life, it's not that high. So, so what would interest me is these things that, like, what are the things that we think would make us happy, and what are the things that do make us happy, and, and being social is one of them. The thing about living with other people, it's certainly not fun every day, right? If you have roommates, or people next to you, or your neighbors make noise, you know, it, it's not as if it's pure bliss. Um, but what happened is that we focus on the things that our neighbors annoy us and we're focusing on them so much that we decrease the quality of our life in general. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's a little bit like the, <coughs> your, your comment from earlier about small talk. Let's say that we all wanted to talk right now. What would be the easiest thing to talk about? The weather and sports. Like there's really like, you know, there's no, we can't go wrong talking about weather and sport. Like, you know, you can't go right. Like, it, nobody would say, oh, if this evening only had a half an hour more of weather and sport, it would have been perfect. So you can't make a mistake, but, but you can't really have a good time either. I mean, it, it's not going to be meaningful. And, and when we have meaningful discussions, it comes with cost. But on average, it's much better. I was, I was at a, a dinner of a company called PWC. It's an it's accounting company and they had this dinner 
and I was sitting with five other people and the person in front of me was talking about basketball, the woman next to me was talking about her vineyard. It was clear it was not going to be a, a, you know, a useful evening. And then I said, you know, why don't we stop and why don't we talk about things we don't usually talk about? Things you can't read about on the internet that we can't find out. Like, let's talk about stuff that is difficult, complex and so on. And the woman sitting next to me was immediately offended because she realized I don't want to talk about her vineyard. But the guy sitting across from me said, I'll take you on this challenge. And he described how uh, he had a son that passed away when he was two, when the son was two years old, and that he took him about four years to get over it. For four years, he couldn't get over it, then he got over it, but his wife uh, could not get over it. And he described in detail his dilemma of whether to stay with his wife when she was bringing him down and he was trying to escape from this misery and eventually after a year he did decide to leave her. But anyway, this happened, I don't know, 10 years ago. I've been to other PWC uh, dinners that I have no memory of anything that happened. And, and that ended up being a very meaningful, difficult, uh, but important evening uh, for me, but I'm sure that for the other people as well. And, and that's the thing, right? When you think about life, if, if we try difficult things, we might fail, but we might get really high payoffs. Or we can play it safe, like talk about the weather or live far away from other people and so on. We don't risk anything going wrong, but we also don't get probability of something really amazing. Speaking with Dana Reale, can you qualify something like intimacy? How does that qualify in, a, in let's say, a a diagnostic on how people communicate? So, so, so let me give you first of all um, an example from economics about this principle and then we'll talk about psychology. There's an economic principle on intimacy? It, it will be about coordination. You know, we'll get them. So, so there's something called the public's good game. And there's lots of versions of it. I'll give you one version. Imagine that there are 10 people in this game. You're one of them. Uh, you wake up every morning and you get $10. And you can choose to keep this money or you can choose to give it back to the community. If you give to, back to the community, the money that is the community owns multiply by five times. In the evening, it's divided equally by everybody. That's the game. So let's, what happens when you play this game? Start the game, 10 people, each, of, each gets $10. Everybody gives the, their money back to the community. Right? That's a wonderful life. That living in a community, everybody participates. That's what a good society is supposed to be. Anyway, when you play this game, it goes on for a while. And then at some point, one person decides to put zero in. What happened? Now, nine people put $10, $90, multiply five times, 450, divide equally by the 10, everybody gets $45, even the person who gave nothing, because everybody benefits. But that person who betrayed the trust has $55. They have their own 10 plus the 45, right? So they benefit on that round. What happens in the next round? Nobody puts anything in. And in economics, we think about this as a situation with two equilibria. There's an equilibria where everybody participates and everybody benefits a lot, but it's a very weak equilibria. It's very fragile because it's enough for one person to deviate that the whole thing fails. The other equilibria is that nobody participates. And that's a very stable equilibria. 
because if two people start participating, nobody pays attention. And, and for me, that's the metaphor for lots of things in society, uh, including small talk. There's lots of things we can talk about. We can talk about meaningful, difficult, complex things that would include being challenging, but also potentially meaningful. Or we can go to this equilibria that nobody benefits from, but nobody loses, which is this bad equilibria. So, so I think that with intimacy, going back to your, finally to your question, I think when we're afraid of being wrong, or we're afraid of opening ourselves up, we adapt a strategy that guarantees that we can't lose, but also guarantees that we can't gain anything. So if you, if you have an evening of a date, let's say. What's that? I don't understand. It used to happen. It's the, if you meet the Tinder person for the fifth time, <laughs> that's what happens. Uh, but if you have a date with somebody and, and you basically read to each other your resume, and you're basically kind of at a low level of equilibrium. You can't go wrong. You read your resume. There's nothing interesting. There's nothing useful. But you're not risking anything. I was thinking about this, you know, looking back on your work. Do you get tired of holding forth? Do you want more discourse in your life? I am very excited that people like social science. Right? So, so I, I think that for a long time, social science was kind of detached from life. Think about kind of the early days of behavioral economics. Almost all the research was on probability. Right? Would you take a gamble that has 80% chance of making $10 and 20% chance of losing $3 and, and you know, so on. And this was like the fruit fly for behavioral economics and it was really useful. But, but with technology, uh, we've moved into life. Right? So, so the internet became closer to life and we became more able to do experiments on how people function. So in online dating, for example, is a great, is a great part. When, when dating was in the physical world, very hard to quantify. We, we did some projects when we basically controlled people's calendars to get them to do different things, right? All of a sudden, technology is allowing us to penetrate people's lives in an amazing way. And I look at that excitement as, as a, the potential to do better. What is the, 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 the micro of the do better? Is it treat each other it, it could be all kinds of things. So, so right now, most of my research is on financial decision making yes. and health. And you have a book coming out? And I have a book on that. I find this funny to say here, but a um, little study we just did. Um, we asked people, we showed them all their financial transactions and asked them to what extent do you regret each of those? What do you think was the thing people regretted the most? Going out. Going out ends up going being out. regretful. And it's, it's not because going out is not a good thing to do. But it's because by the time we go, we end up overeating, over drinking, then we wake up the next day and we say, why did we do it this way? I read somewhere, just to change the beat a little bit, that you don't sleep much. And, and I can only imagine not knowing you very well. Do you literally have these kind of Rube Goldbergian devices swirling in your head? I mean, do you, can you turn off your, your font of, of data and information and... Is that too no, cute no, a question? I, I can't. I can't. And, and I have to say that it's a fun way to live. It's a fun uh, way. It's a fun way to live. Um, you know, friends are often worried. Um, I taught a Coursera class at some point, and every time something went wrong, the, stu the students were sure that I'm doing an experiment uh, on them. 
the same thing is happening with friends, right? If if something happens, they always think I'm testing. Yeah, it's uh, like a thief assumes you're a thief. <laughs> you know, a liar assumes you're. I mean, that's yeah. a different a bucket, but yeah. But so 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 I always think about social science, but but there's something really wonderful uh, about that, and and I think about social science as kind of another layer to describe what it is we're doing. So you know, I imagine you go. Um, and you see anything, you see, you see people going to a bar for a date. And you say, why would people come to a date to a noisy place? How can that be the right, the right thing? But, but if you think about it, you say, maybe it gives people masking for uh, awkward silence. Or maybe it gives them a reason to, uh, to get physically close yeah. uh, to somebody. So, so this level of trying to take specific behaviors and trying to find the principles in them uh, is incredibly interesting. Do you think we have more to, to, to do in terms of acceptance of data? I mean, do people resist your work in that way? Do people think I, you're looking at the form and not the guts of the thing? Yeah, so, you know, I don't know if people have, you know, not, not to my face at least, I don't, I don't feel this way, but I also, you know, my, my sense of science is that it's an ongoing process. If, if I show you some result and you say, oh, I believe it will be different in a different situation, I'm not going to say that can't possibly be the case. It's a journey. It's a journey. It just so happened that on the journey of social science, I know a little bit more because I've been a, a part of it a bit more. But um, I think the important thing is it's, it's a journey and we're trying to understand what it is and we're trying to, to change how the world is so that we have better better outcomes you know if you look if you look at the world and you say how much of the terrible things that we're doing are man-made you know hurricanes and you know that terrible thing but mostly it's us it's mostly it's us and if we cured cancer let's say we came up with a pill that cured cancer by how much would we extend the average human life a few months maybe three or four months if we got people to stop eating sugar Right, very vastly different uh, 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 ways of, of improving things. So, so I look at this and I say, we are designing the world in the wrong way. We are designing things to tempt us and kill us early and make us miserable and so on. And, and I think that the journey is to try and figure out what are the things that we're doing badly and let's try and fix them. Poor segue or great segue into elections. But I want to look at this uh, without, without the politics if we can. And I was thinking about Nate Silver again. Nate uh, started, basically was doing a lot of baseball analytics yep. and developed ways to help teams scout better. There's, a, there's an old expression in baseball, I don't know if you're a baseball fan, that every baseball team will win one third of their games lose one-third of their games. It's what happens with that middle third. And I was thinking about that today, and I was thinking about the election, uh, the most recent presidential election, that there was almost one-third on one side, one-third on the other side, if we want to be convenient for a moment. And then there was this middle third, and we know which way the middle third went. But if we look at it on a level of decision-making, which is one of your many wheelhouses, what were the decisions in that middle third? So, so first of all, I think it's important to recognize that most people don't make a decision. Most people are kind of born into their uh, political ideology and they don't really change. And it's kind of an amazing thing to think about. 
right? I mean, people also born into their, uh, around the world into ideology of which, which soccer team they, um, <laughs> they are fans of. But, you know, I think that the, the number of people who switch soccer teams is like 3%. Right, and I think the number of people who switch political ideology is very is very wrong, and that's a very worrisome thing. Right, when you start with it, you say it's not about information; it, it's really I, I, like ideology you get from birth, yeah. kind of on, on the house. Now, I, I will tell you where I'm optimistic about it and where I'm pessimistic about this this birth part. Um, do you remember this philosopher called John Rawls? Uh, John Rawls was a, a very interesting philosopher and he, he asked the question of what's a just society? And he said a just society is a society that if you knew everything about it, you would be willing to enter it in a random place. Now think about something like wealth distribution. If you're very wealthy, you want the wealthy to have high income and low taxes and the poor to have nothing. If you're very poor, you want something that is more like socialism. But if you don't know where you'll be, you have to think about all perspectives, right? And Rawls called this the veil of ignorance. The idea is you make a choice which society you go, and only then you find out if you're the rich or the poor or where you are. So we asked lots of Americans. We first of all asked people, what do you know about the wealth distribution in the US? <coughs> so we all know that the wealthy have a lot, right? But, but how much do the poor have? So imagine I said, there's 100% of all the wealth in the US, that's the pie. What percentage of this is owned by the bottom 40% of Americans? What do you think it is? Five, 10. So that's what people say. People say eight or so on average. It's 0 0.3, right? Uh, we, this is what is called the Gini coefficient, how much the wealthy have and how little the poor have. And people know that the rich have a lot. People don't recognize in the US, how little the poor, the poor have. Now, the next thing we did was we asked people to give us what do they think is the ideal wealth distribution. How much do you want the bottom 20 to have, the next 20, the next 20, the next 20, the next 20, so that you would be willing to join that country? And it turns out people want a much more equal society in the US. Actually, Americans want more an equal society than Sweden when they describe it this way. And the difference between Republicans and Democrats is tiny. <coughs> Republicans want the, the, the poor to have slightly less. Democrats want it to have slightly more. But it's tiny compared to the gap between what we have and what people think is a just society. So on the positive side, I think that we look at the political gap and we say, what can Republicans and Democrats agree on? Hard to imagine anything. When you ask the question in the Rawlsian way, which says the veil of ignorance, let's think in principle, what do you think is just? Americans are, want an incredibly equal society, more equal than Sweden. That's on the good side. Now what it means is that politicians are taking our relatively similar ideology in terms of what we think is right, and they're redirecting it. Mm. And I think single issue voters are like that. Single issue voters, can you imagine somebody saying the right to own whatever, a gun, is more important than the rest of human life? No matter what you do on the other side, health, education, it doesn't matter to me, it's enough to do that. You know, if you have three issues, you can be a single issue voter. If you have hundreds of them, 
and they're all important. It's incredibly challenging. So, so I think that the, the, the good news is that Americans actually believe when you ask people the right way, there's lots of common values <clears throat> that you actually believe in. Not everything, but a lot. The, the real issue is how politics has been successful in giving us the impression uh, that we're much more different than we think and creating really a, a, a tear in, in Americans. Now, when you think, now I'm finally getting to your question. I know it's, uh, it's most okay. but you know, as long as you're patient. It was um, a long election cycle, so I'm, I'm very <laughs> patient about these sorts of things. Now, so I think there are lots of people who never really, never really thought about the issues, never voted, never, never did something. The, the people who did vote differently this election were the fuck you vote, right? And, and we have to admit that no matter where you are on the political spectrum, um, the US have abandoned the poor. The Democrats have abandoned the poor, the Republicans have uh, abandoned the poor. Uh, the, the, there's a tremendous amount of um, feeling of betrayal. And, and I can understand that feeling of betrayal, right? And, and that feeling of betrayal is not just for the individual, it's for their families and for a long time. And it will continue for a very long time. You know, as a university professor, I'm very worried about universities. Universities are an incredible mechanism to basically increase wealth inequality. For, forget the cost of university, which we can, we can talk about separately, but, but who are the people that have the capacity to even apply and get accepted and spend time in, in education? Now, it's very important for society and, and so on, but, but it's a mechanism that as we move forward in society, you know, molecular biology, as molecular biology is getting better, good biologists will have to be trained in good universities. If you go to a university that doesn't have a good molecular biology department, you can never be a good biologist. And to have a good molecular biology lab, you need hundreds of millions of dollars. So, so we are on this, on this road toward increase in equality. And there are lots of people who are, rightly so, incredibly concerned and worried. And you know what? They don't care if the country goes to hell because they don't have much to lose. That's what I love about your work. You never discount the subjective. It may, not, you know, because what you're saying is very much a hybrid of subjectivity, objectivity. Yep. A couple more beats and, and we'll do questions, but you could just shout them out. We'll do a couple of questions. Um, I, I was thinking about uh, changes to the election and I was wondering, you know, one of the, uh, some countries, it's a very small percentage, I think Greece, uh, Ukraine, uh, have an option, a presidential, an option for a leadership election, none of the above. We don't have that option. Do you think it, it would be an interesting experiment in addition to an election ballot, none of the above? Yeah, so, so first of all, there's a question of do we want to force people to vote? Right, so Australia, for example, you have to vote. There's we, a there's a day of yeah. vacation, yeah. and and everybody has to vote. And that's a really interesting thing to ask uh, whether we want this uh, this democracy uh, that that forces people to vote. 
Um, I'll tell you what my view of uh, the ideal democracy, if I could have it. Um, so first of all, if you think about this notion of roles, I would love, you, have you ever played SimCity? You remember the SimCity and Cement and so on? I, I haven't played it in years, but I would love SimPolitics. <coughs> I would love a system that allows you to play with your assumption. That you could say, you know what? Let's cancel Obamacare in, in the simulation. And let's see what happens, right? <laughs> what happens to healthcare costs and what happened to health and so on. And, yeah. and I think, you know, we make these decisions in incredibly complex systems, but we don't really lay down our assumptions. So one is I would love to have, like, as a, as a tool for democracy, I would love to have sim politics. But the second thing is I, I suspect that we don't have to vote uh, for one person for everything. Right? I mean, we, we, we have this uh, voting system because, you know, that was the electoral system that we had to have. But, but now, why can't I pick one person to vote for me on educational reform <coughs> and another person to vote for me on financial? Why does it have to be one person that is everything for me? Um, so, so I really like the idea of saying I want to assign different people the right to vote for me on different things. And, and not only that, I don't have to assign politicians. I can assign you. I can say, you know what, you look to me like, uh, it's, uh, we don't know each other, so I'll, I'll just assume. Uh, you're, you're onto it though, yes. Okay. <clears throat> so I say, you know, I think you understand a lot about uh, education. You're a citizen, but you can basically redirect my vote whoever you think is, is, the, right, is the right person. So I think there's a, um, a whole new different possibility for representative democracy. That, that could be much better. And if we do that, uh, that I think would be much better than kind of tinkering with the current system. There's a MIT professor actually, Tara Swart. I don't know if you know Tara. I don't. She uh, wrote a study and her uh, result was that essentially people think lazily. You know, talking about using 10% of our brains hither and yon. She surmised in lay terms that people, people choose based on, on laziness, yep. you know, that you're, you're asking a, a, the human brain to take on homework. I love homework. You seem to love homework. You can't sleep for Christ's sakes. Um, what about that? How do we retrain a populace to get more rigorous when we live in an age where intellectual, uh, the, 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 the collateral of intellectualism is, is on tenter? Yeah, so, so, so part, of the, part of the issue is that in, in, in current politics, we have no influence. So let's say I give you an equation. I say, why don't you study for a thousand hours Obamacare, and then you'll be able to have a better informed opinion about this. What is the payoff? There's a payoff in terms of your own education, but there's no payoff in terms of changing it. Right, right. right? So right. now, if you're a, a two-person country, you have a lot of power. You're talking about couple of hundred of millions and you don't have much control so in some sense it is crazy for us to expect people to be knowledgeable in everything yes now what I would like is for people to be knowledgeable at some things that they care about and then have the feeling at least that they can have an influence I'll tell you about another model a another model I would love to try is a model in which people get to direct 5% of their taxes so imagine at the end of the year we say, look, these are all the government offices. There's environment, education, and so on, military. We'll give you 5% of your taxes to allocate as you see please, as you, as you, as you see fit between of those aspects. 
that's a form of democracy, right? Where you get to say, my contribution of taxes, and I'm going to be had to some leeway in directing it. And I think now, people would have the feeling that they, whatever they do has some consequences. Yeah. Um, as we round up, I mean, every you're intoxicating, man. I mean, honestly, I, I mean that on a platonic level, my friend. But you know, you, you just um, you're you seem to know what you're saying, but also you're learning. You're almost teacher and student in one. It's fast. It's, it's fascinating, and I want to thank you. You know, I know this is. It's not like Dan had nothing to do today. I mean, literally, you you've been at it, and I appreciate it. But I have a problem as we as we close off today. Um, I have two problems. Problem one is I, I email a lot with people who work in Hollywood. That's a big problem. And music. So I need your advice. I know you don't do a consultation, um, but there's no agenda here other than my own sanity. It's funny, when I, doing the show, I've had a lot of great guests, present company included, and um, I'm really honored. They, I always say they do the show because there's no reason not to do it. It's almost motivation free. When, what I've found in my correspondence, you've done a lot of work with emailing the whys and what's important, what's not, how do we filter, and how do we decide. What I've found in emailing a lot of people who work in these kind of fabric arts, the fiction arts, they, there's two words they hate, and I'll give you the order they hate them in. When I ask them to do something or invite them, the second, most, the second least popular word is yes. That's the second least popular word. The most, the, unpopular word is no. People in my field hate to say no. Following a little yeah, bit yeah. here, and it's excruciating. People are terrified to say no. And I'm thinking in my crude, uh, Ruth Goldbergian brain here, what is, what is the connectivity in the modern world between accountability, you know, a release of connection? You know, why are people, why do people get bogged down with yeah. With, uh, with responding. Do you know what I'm saying? Th this nothing response that I find in my work drives me yeah. crazy. Help yeah. me. S saying no is very tough, right? Saying no is, is tough. And, and it's tough on multiple grounds. Uh, the first one is you get to imagine the person on the other side and how sad they're going to be if you say no to them. Now, the truth is, you're number 17 that they reach to, and there's more people that they can do it. But <coughs> when you say no to somebody, you, you have an over-exaggerated view of yourself, and you feel how the other person will be devastated. Oh, if somebody invites me to a podcast, if I say no, oh my goodness, they have to be so sad. They'll probably cry the whole night. How could they possibly get over it? Who else could they get if it's not me? <coughs> I think it's more common. Um, but, but the other thing, of course, is the, the feeling of potential loss. And uh, one of the things is that, um, you know, you never know what opportunities you give up that might play incredibly well. That's the pain point for me, yeah. if I can turn it inside out. Yeah, and I think, I think, you know, life, I mean, we're all gamblers, right? If you think about gambling, you remember the psychologist B.F. Skinner? Yeah. B.F. Skinner showed that if you take a rat, and you give them every hundred times they click, they press on a pedal, they get a pedal to food, that's exciting. But if it's a random number between one and 200, that's really exciting. The rat works much longer, it doesn't stop. And I think life, life is really about gambling with our time, right? You try different things, from time to time you do something and it really ends up really well. And we remember those cases when we gambled with our time and things worked uh, very well and we are addicted to that. So, to the so low or the high? We're addicted to the high, but you know, it's, it's like checking your email. 
Like, you know, most time it's just annoying, boring stuff. But from time to time, it's really exciting. And you hear the little beep and you say, maybe it's now, maybe it's now, maybe this is it. So, so we are junkies for, for highs. And what you're offering people is a, a potential high. And if they say no, what, what are they giving up? Could they have been giving up that, that aspect? So it's a compliment. No, not to you. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reaction. It's a reaction to the fact that people have gambled with their time before, and from time to time it really worked out, yeah. and they keep on seeking this. But, but I have an experiment to propose to you. Do. Would you be willing to write people pretending that they have talked to you already before? Oh, I'd love that. You basically say, I'm following, up, I'm following up on our correspondence <sighs> from last year. Last year you told me that if I approach you again in October, <laughs> you'll certainly say yes. I think people have no memory of what they did they last don't. October. They don't. And they will feel so bad about saying no. Let me, let me, let me, name, thank you. Let me name names for a moment. I started doing these different, various and sundry iterations of this guest series, and I'm going to round out with a, with a compliment to this incredible man to my left, because he's the exact opposite of what I'm about to lay out. There are people I've been emailing for five, the five years I've been doing this, and I'm, a, I'm not going to name names, Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges, <laughs> I always get the kindest, email me in two months, email me in six months, sounds great. and it's. I do, I have a, a mind like a Sicilian. I never forget anything. But when I follow up at that point, Professor, I get the next push ahead. What should I do? Yeah. So you should say, as you told me six months ago, this is the month you prefer to appear. I have these three dates possible. Yes. And so pick, pick the one you want. It comes down to guilt, doesn't it? <laughs> guilt is great. Guilt is great. Use it. The opposite, as we end out, um, if you go to Professor Ariely's e uh, web website, it's very candid how many emails he gets uh, and how there may be a, a log gem in him getting back to you. I emailed him um, the same day I got an email back from his uh, associate saying, Dan would love to do this. If it sounds like I'm exaggerating when I tell you how much that means to me, I'm not. Thank you so much. Professor Dan Ariely, everybody. Now, here's a cool coda. I have begun that experiment. I have begun that research project. I'm calling it Just Say Maybe. The propensity for certain guests to say maybe for years and years and years and years and years and not say no. Now, I'm very fortunate. My guests do say yes and people do say yes, but it's amazing how many people say maybe. Rather, they don't say no. There's a huge difference. So I have begun that experiment. I will update you on the website murmurradio.com about the findings, the very scientific findings. This is science. This is really cool. Uh, but here's the fun coda. Jeff, drumroll, Jeff Bridges is going to be on our show. <laughs> After five years, and uh, one assistant named Becky, who's really super sweet, and I've been emailing Becky for many years. We laugh about it. And now we finally got it down. Um, not because, well, because of this experiment a little bit, but I'll, I'll go to murmurradio.com. You could see the updated. I don't know when the updated results are going to be there because Dan wants a large sample size, so I'm still chiseling my way through the sample size. But Jeff Bridges will be on Murmur soon, so it's kind of a funny uh, byproduct of the talk with Dan. And, um, yeah, so Jeff, you know, a score one, 
for social science. want to thank Dan Ariely for being here on Murmur Meta. We want to thank you, murmurradio.com, at MSF Murmur, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Download us. And yeah, we want to bring to you more of these uh, Murmur Metas, these smaller, more streamlined versions of the show. And yeah, so keep listening. Uh, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, social handles, and tune into our regular broadcast every week. Uh, four per month, one per week. You do the math, I'll do the science. Results from my survey ahead. <laughs> <laughs>